Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast What do you love about music? To begin with <laughs> everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to do a classic album dissection of Johnny Cash's at Folsom Prison. Plus, we'll review the new albums from Rage Against the Machine singer Zach Delarocca and much hype indie popsters Black Kids. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. School spirit of the Alpha step, Omega step, Kappa step, Sigma step, gangsters walk, pimps gon' talk. Oh, heck you know, that boy is wrong. Just in time for back to school kids, the U.S. Senate and the House have agreed to reauthorize the Higher Education Act which will turn universities into police. What they're going to do is monitor peer-to-peer file sharing on campuses, making the movie industry and the music industry very happy. What this means is that the universities are going to be able to reduce bandwidth, block sites and ports, and impede the ability of students to use peer-to-peer if they suspect any sort of illegal file sharing going on. So in other words, we have the U.S. government telling the universities of America that they must, according to law, monitor the Internet activities of each of their students and report them, reduce their privileges if they violate the law regarding peer-to-peer file sharing. That's a pretty extreme measure, if you ask me, Jim, having the U.S. government get involved. It appears the bill is going to go to George Bush to be signed, and apparently Bush is in favor of this particular bill. Just in time for the return to school. Yeah, Greg, I think this is an outrage. I mean, the universities should be a sacred space that police themselves without interference from the government. And I mean, but it's a moot thing anyway, right? Because we all know that nobody on a college campus is guilty of illegal downloading. No one <laughs> ever copies their paper or cheats on a test. It doesn't doesn't happen. I can't stand- Greg, that is the rather bonehead hard rock band <laughs> Buck Cherry with their song Too Drunk, which I promised we would not be playing in any other context but the news on this show. This is kind of one of those no-duh kind of yeah. stories. Uh, we did talk a couple of weeks ago about how the major labels are beginning to use internet leaks, early album leaks of uh, records by people like Nas and Lil Wayne as part of their well 
oiled promotional machines, right? right? And now we have a really funny nailed-down example of this from the Wall Street Journal. Recently did a piece about this Buck Cherry song, which was uh, leaked, and then the band allegedly responded even as their label, Atlantic Records, was really ticked off. They they rush-released a video for the song, and it's on the charts, and blah, 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 okay? (laughs) For once, the online community, they decided, look, we're going to prove. Even at the same time as Atlantic is complaining that this was an illegal leak. They tracked down the IP address of the first leak song, and it was from the manager for the band yeah, yeah. himself, this guy Josh Clemmy, who uh, would not speak to the Wall Street Journal. Atlantic, meanwhile, <laughs> continued to uphold the illusion. We take this very seriously, a spokesperson said. But it worked. I mean, it's a smart move. They released this music, and inexplicably, because it's pretty darn awful, it started to shoot up the charts. Now, this is the new scam. Well, Jim, Buck Cherry, as you said, is an awful rock band, but one thing they have picked up from the rappers who have cornered the market on this sort of thing is how to promote themselves, how to market themselves. Right. The rap artists for the last five to ten years have completely dominated the market in terms of just building anticipation for their records. So now Buck Cherry is taking a page out of that. And even though they did it very clumsily, they're getting us to talk about their album, which we otherwise never would have. Well, the only hypocrisy of it is, I mean, major labels, stop pretending you're not the ones behind this. Right. Please. For the last five years, the 800-pound gorilla in the digital download domain, as far as sales go, is the iTunes store. As everybody knows, they are completely dominating the legitimate download market in America, and throughout the world, for that matter. Steve Jobs is one of the most important men in the record business as a result. But he's got some competition on the horizon. Less than a year ago, Amazon opened its digital download store, uh, not to a whole lot of fanfare. It didn't get a whole lot of business, but things could be changing very quickly. It has a business relationship now with MySpace.com, and here's how it's going to work. MySpace.com is going to allow consumers to stream entire songs. They're going to say, hey, I like that song. With a click of a button, they can go to the same website and order the song from Amazon, and right there they've got that song ready to download and ready to put into their iPod if they want. Without having to open a separate application, as you have to with iTunes, and without having the DRM, the file-restricting arrangement that that iTunes has. Exactly. So the major labels and uh, artists are ecstatic about this uh, possible turn of events because the monopoly that iTunes has enjoyed, where they've dominated 75 percent of the legitimate market. It looks like it could be eroding very quickly if this Amazon MySpace thing takes off. So Steve Jobs is already my Facebook buddy, but now <laughs> I can add Amazon's Jeff Bezos as my MySpace pal? I think he's the next big player in the business, Jim. You're absolutely right. All right. Greg, as far as I'm concerned, we can never play enough ABBA here on Sound Opinions, and we have a legit reason to this week. The Swedish supergroup just made British chart history as Gold, their greatest hits, which is a heck of an album. I mean, if you don't own Gold, then you just, I mean, you don't like music. I'm sorry. Uh, It just became the oldest album ever to reach number one on the UK charts. Maybe it's going to pull off a similar coup at some point in the future in the U.S. Why? Uh, There's that movie, Mamma Mia, which I say, I I love ABBA, but I don't love them (laughs) enough to go see that movie. The movie just came out. Everybody's talking about ABBA again. And the numbers are just absolutely extraordinary. 26 million copies of gold sold so far, one of the 40 best-selling albums of all time, and ABBA's overall legacy is something like 350 million albums sold with 3 million a year being added to that regularly. Why have these four Swedes not reunited? Why have they not cashed in on this huge amount of... Benny and Bjork just gave an interview a couple <laughs> yeah. of weeks ago saying there's no point. We have we did what we did. Yeah. We're proud of what we did, and there's no reason to go back. And I applaud them for that. I wish more people had that attitude. Well, if they're making $350 million a year or whatever it is, I guess you don't need to reunite, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take you there. I'm going to take you there. So don't be scared. 
Some of you who are old enough uh, may remember when that slogan originated, double your pleasure, double your fun. A certain chewing gum manufacturer, William Wrigley Jr., came up with that slogan in 1960, but that's uh, a long time ago. That's like a half century. Yeah. Uh, they decided to update their image a little bit, so they enlisted three performers to uh, write jingles for them, and one of them, Chris Brown, you just heard. What's different about this, well, you've got the jingles on one hand, but now you've got the jingle folded into a pop song that is being aired on radio stations around the country, being downloaded by Chris Brown fans all over the world. So a new level of advertising. We've seen performers in the past, Jim, name drop particular brands in their songs. Sure. But this is an instance where a performer was actually enlisted by an ad agency representing a large corporation to uh, essentially shill for that corporation inside a pop song. The worst thing, Greg, is that Chris Brown isn't even the only one. The R&B singer Neo was recruited to uh, to retake Big Red's, you know, kiss a little bit longer, you know, the, the cinnamon gum. And uh, the country singer and former Dancing with the Stars <laughs> contestant, Julianne Huff, she recorded a twangy version of Juicy Fruits, The Taste is Gonna Move Ya. I don't remember that slogan. But, I mean, this, I mean it's just insidious. When you have rappers name-dropping Corvassier for example, or Dom, and you have, you know, Vampire Weekend singing about Louis Vuitton, are we now going to have to suspect that they've been paid to do so? Or is it just what it used to be, like wishful thinking? Yeah. You know, and can you send me some of that stuff, manufacturer? Exactly. I mean, artists used to argue that they wrote these songs from a pure place, and then later on it was appropriated for an ad or a TV commercial or a a movie. You had Moby saying, I didn't write that song to be in a commercial. It just happened to be that way. Now you clearly have the flip side of that equation where artists are getting paid to be part of commercials up front. You know, we're a little upset about this, but we're wondering if you, the listeners, are. You know, if you agree or disagree with us, give us a call at 888-859-1800 and give us your opinion about this subject. are the Smashing Pumpkins back when they actually were the Smashing Pumpkins 1991 the debut album Gish the song I Am One you were a big fan Mr. Cott you said audacious and accomplished you were <laughs> hurling superlatives at him well you're going to get a chance to do that again because the Pumpkins are gearing up for a round of 20th anniversary shows playing Gish that first album in its entirety so the fanboards say around about November they are the latest alternative rock band to be partying once again like it's 1992 or 3 or 1 or 4. Everybody wants to go back. This particularly breaks my heart to see bands like Sonic Youth, Liz Fair, Slint, the Stooges, uh, who were, who were of course, alternative heroes, Tortoise, all going backwards and playing an entire album from their heyday as if they are no longer moving forward and as if you know, it's a particularly weird kind of nostalgia because when Exile and Guyville came out, for example, Liz Fair never performed that double album from beginning to end. For that matter, the Pumpkins didn't with Gish. Uh, so this is this weird kind of like Lark's tongue in aspect uh, element <laughs> yeah. to it. You know, I, nostalgia, I think, was always 
anathema to the alternative era when it was happening. You know, St. Kurt Cobain, hate, hate, I've got a new yeah, complaint. Right. What he was saying was hate, H-A-T-E, hate, as in Ashbury, hated the baby boom nostalgia of bands like the Eagles and Pink Floyd and stuff, and we will never be that, he said, and, well, now they're all becoming that. Jim, I'm, I'm surprised, though, that you're surprised, because when the Sex Pistols did Never Bind the Bollocks in uh, 1996, that's when I knew none of it meant anything. It but was that like was still... one of those things where you thought yeah. you would never see that happen. Punk generation. Exactly. I'm talking about Gen now, X. Now Gen and X all is doing bands. its version of that, and I'm surprised that you're surprised that Generation X is doing it too. I mean, these bands—they've all grown up. They're all in their 30s and 40s now. So is their audience. Their audience has a lot more spending power. I mean, you're talking about Liz Fair cashing in in a big way. When she does an Exile and Guyville on this current tour, she's grossing 31000 bucks a night. $31,000 for an hour and a half's work. Exactly, as opposed to like 18000 a night a year ago from 17 shows. So she's obviously making a lot more money playing an album that everybody loved 15 years ago than she would have just playing her current stuff. Ditto for Sonic Youth when they did Daydream Nation. I mean, in two shows earlier this year... They made more money, nearly a half million dollars, than they did all of 2006. Here's a band that's making a lot of money playing an old album front to back, and there's an audience clearly there that wants to hear that. You know, but the, the, the thing is, Greg, I think that the alternative era bands are, are seizing upon this play the whole album as a justification to not make it look like what it is, mm-hmm. an oldie show. Yeah. We're doing an oldie show, but we're, we're going to say we're going to play the album so that it seems better. We're not exactly as bad as Journey with only <laughs> half the original members at the state fair. You know right. what I mean? Right. You know, but we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, Jim. I mean, the other other day at uh, the Pitchfork Music Festival in, in Union Park, you know, 50,000 people from around the world come to see Sebado perform Bubble and Scrape. <laughs> know. You know, did anybody care about that album when it was released in 1993, let alone hearing it again 15 years later? I'm sorry. Well, you know, but in contrast, Mission of Burma played that night, too. They did all of their debut album verses. Right. Burma's released two excellent albums since right. they reunited. And I think the fact that, that they hadn't played one of their whole albums in their entirety. You know, a couple of years ago, Cheap Trick played the whole first four or five albums yeah. of their catalog over five nights. It was a small club show. Mm-hmm. It was more like, you know, hey, fans, we got all these weird songs that you guys are crazy about that we've never even played. Right. It can be done well, but we're reaching, like with the outdoor summer festivals, a glut point. Yeah, it's it's maxed out. It's to the point where you don't want to hear another band do another album for nostalgia reasons purely. Then again, do you really want to hear the new music from Dinosaur Jr.? Do you really oh, no. want to hear no, the new music from... You know, Buffalo Tom or the Lemonheads. I think no! They would. <laughs> no! I think they would rather hear the old records. It's for you know, nostalgia can be bad too, you know? <laughs> And it's you 
When we come back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Mr. Cotton and I will launch into one of our periodic classic album dissections. The subject at hand this week, Johnny Cash's Enduring and Immortal at Folsom Prison. Plus, we'll review the new albums from One Day as a Lion, that's the new project from Rage Against the Machine vocalist Zach De La Rocca, and The Black Kids. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Look around you, I see a sympathetic Johnny Cash. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps rolling. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. As Jim mentioned earlier, we like to do these uh, classic album dissections every once in a while, and we're going to look at Johnny Cash's At Folsom Prison today. Iconic album for a number of reasons, but let's put this album in its context, Jim, where Cash was in his career when this record was recorded on January 13th, 1968. Consider that Cash had begun his career in the 50s and had a number of hits for the Sun Records label. But by the time he made this record in 68, he was 15 years into his career, basically. And he was considered by his label somewhat of a has-been, somewhat washed up. He'd still had a bunch of hits, but he wasn't looking so good. He had a huge yeah. drug problem. Yeah, to say the uh, least. His marriage was, was breaking up. He hadn't had a hit for quite a while. He'd made a number of really kind of crazy records. I mean, just questionable taste being exhibited. Uh, one of his most recent albums at the time was called Everybody Loves a Nut. Yeah, I know. Can you imagine Johnny Cash well, coming out with a record titled that at that point? And remember, remember, this is still the first generation of rock and rollers. Mm-hmm. You know, now we take it as a, for granted that the Rolling Stones will continue when they're 70, right. right? But, you know, nobody, none of his peers, not Chuck Berry and not Jerry Lee Lewis, nobody was really sustaining a career into a second decade at that point. It, it was not a given. That's a great point. And Cash was considered a has-been by a lot of people. They thought, okay, his run is over. But things turned around for him at Columbia when his producer, since the 50s, Don Law, retired, and a new guy came into the game, a guy by the name of Bob Johnson, who was about 35 years old at the time. Johnson, you may remember, was the guy who was involved in all those key Dylan albums from the mid-60s onward, uh, Highway 61 Revisited, John Wesley Harding, Blonde on Blonde. He'd recorded some music with Simon and Garfunkel. He was a New York hipster, and he understood what uh, artists wanted. He was he was uh, one of those iconoclasts who said, you know, the label doesn't know nothing. I listen to the <laughs> artists. I let the artists do what they want. I'll roll the tape. Johnny Cash wanted to make a live album at a prison for at least a decade. And Johnny Cash had performed at prisons. That's one thing people may not realize, but he'd been playing in prisons since 1957. Uh, and si- since about the early 60s, he'd been begging his label, saying, I want to do an album here. I know how these audiences react. It's going to be great. And the labels are going, you crazy. Um, getting back to that Folsom Prison album, you had a, a lot of trouble persuading somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. They didn't uh, think it would go. Is that the reason? You'd have to hear the reaction and response or enthusiasm from prison audience to really believe it. Uh, maybe it was captured on the album, maybe it wasn't, but 
first time I played a prison, I, I said, this is the only place to record an album live because I never heard a, a reaction to the songs like the prisoners gave. Now, Cash himself has an interesting history here as well. He had been in jail a couple of times, not for any long stays, but he did have a bit of a record. And, and this sort of ties in with the earlier point about the fact that he was having an issue with drugs and was acting kind of crazy, and the label was wondering, what do we have here? So in 61, he spent four hours in jail on drunkenness and disorderly conduct charges in, in Nashville. And then in 65, he was busted for uh, crossing over into Mexico, buying about 1,000 pills, yeah. trying to cross back into El Paso. He got arrested by the, by the border police and, and stuck in jail. And he ended up paying a fine and being handcuffed. Uh, the picture was shown on newspapers around the country and was kind of an indication of the dissolution of Johnny Cash. You know, a great career was coming to the end. Here was this guy being busted for buying drugs in Mexico. My bills are all due and the babies need shoes but I'm busted. Cotton is down to a quarter a pound and I'm busted. I got a cow that went dry and a hen that won't lay A big stack of bills that get bigger each day The county will haul my belongings away I'm busted And I don't think it's exaggerated that June Carter Cash, uh, you know, saved him. June Carter came into his life and sort of set him on the straight and narrow path, as it were. And the start of that, Jim, was really, I think, this concert. I think this is the, mm-hmm. this is the moment where the second phase of Johnny Cash's career really got rolling. And uh, within a year, he was a superstar again. From the home of the world-renowned Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee, the Kraft Music Hall presents the second annual Country Music Awards. The next award is for the Country Music Album of the Year. This award is to the artist, but there will also be a plaque later for the producer. The albums nominated are Best of Merle Haggard, Performer Merle Haggard. By the time I get to Phoenix, Performer Glenn Campbell. Divorce, Performer Tammy Wynette. Gentle on My Mind, Performer Glenn Campbell. And Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, Performer Johnny Cash. The album of the year, Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. I think the Johnny Cash that we know today as this great, American icon, one of the great performers in American music from the last half century, that reputation really started to be forged and solidified when he made this record. Well, Greg, uh, you know, we're making the case that this is one of the greatest live albums of all time, and one of the things is where it was recorded. I think you need to know a few things about Folsom Prison. You know, this place was built in the late 1870s on the site of a mining camp. It was imposing. It looked like a medieval fortress. It was a scary place. People spent their time in four-by-eight cells with six-inch thick metal doors that are still there to this day. Mm -hmm. They made an improvement sometime in the 50s. They drilled some holes in the door. Air holes, okay? Mm -hmm. This is where the state of California hung all of the people who were convicted of of capital crimes until they moved over to San Quentin with the gas chamber, which happened to be the next place Johnny Cash played. See through the prison bars, Joe Bean. See where the gallows stands. Just 20 short years from the day you were born You died by the hangman's hand Yes, they're hanging Joe Bean this morning For a shooting that he never did He killed 20 men By the time he was 10 He was an unruly kid Yes, they're hanging Joe Bean For the one shooting That Joe Bean never did It was a scary place. There was a stone quarry. Uh, Half the prisoners worked all day breaking rocks, literally. The other half worked in the metal shop. To this day, every license plate in the state of California is made at Folsom Prison. You know, the mailing address is Represa, California, which means damn in Hmm. Spanish. Okay, this is a scary place. I did a lot of reporting early in my career when I was an investigative reporter on a jail in Hudson County, New Jersey, that was similar. When Cash played there, the population was like 7,500. It's a prison built to hold 3,500, and that's how many it holds today. It's overcrowded. It's tense. 
it smell there's a smell in prison that I don't think is like anything else in the world that I've ever smelled it's part fear and sweat and excitement and danger the guards hate being there the prisoners hate being there anybody who visits once is loath to go back hmm. and here Cash is coming to play for these he's going into you know, probably the only person in history who's willingly walked into prison where it's dark as a dungeon down as the dew danger is double pleasures are few where the rain never falls the sun never shines it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine It's a hostile environment. If the prisoners are kind to him, then the guards are going to hate him. If the guards like him, then the prisoners are going to hate him. And into this abyss walks Johnny Cash. So how does Johnny Cash win over these people? He walks out on stage, and, of course, he's dressed in black. Right off the bat, he's saying, I'm with you guys. I think more, though, there's an attitude. There's a, like He's not afraid to be there. He's happy to be there, and he wants to prove himself to the prisoners. He's not taking it for granted. I'm your entertainment for the evening. You should like me. He comes out. He says who he is. He's not afraid to give his name. I'm Johnny Cash, emphatically. And then he plays a song that he wrote about this place that nobody loves, everyone hates, and no one wants to be there. And not only does he sing about it, he confesses a crime. <laughs> Everybody else in that prison is innocent. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. He did. I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. There you can see exactly what Jim DeRigatis was talking about. The connection that he had with this audience was apparent, and the visceral response that he was getting as he was performing these songs. You know, it was Cash with a with a tremendous band uh, playing this this concert. It's one of the reasons it's one of the greatest concerts ever recorded. I mean, he had the Tennessee Three with whom he'd been recording since the fifties, but he also had his wife June Carter there guessing on a couple of songs. He had the Statler Brothers with him singing some backup vocals, and he also had Carl Perkins on guitar. So a pretty amazing band. But really, what it was all about was Cash, that man in black, up there at the foot of the stage. The audience, literally within a couple of feet of him. With his guitar, uh, they could have done anything to him. But what they ultimately responded to was a guy who had this confidence, uh, this presence to basically own that place for for those two hours and and did a tremendous job of it. People may think, well, half the songs in this show were about people in prison, uh, you know, spoken from the perspective of a convict. And and you may think, well, oh, he, he was obviously pandering to this crowd. Well, no, no, not at all. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, he'd been playing in prisons for 10 years now. And on his first album in the 50s, released for Sun Records, three of the songs were sung from the perspective of a con. He was writing about people in prison even at that early stage. And it was a very important part of his his interest in American song. Uh, Johnny Cash came from a very tough, poor, blue-collar, working-class background where he recognized that the difference between him and the guy behind bars was not that much. And he had an incredible empathy for that audience, understanding what it was to be there in that kind of a position where it could have easily been him. And I think the audience implicitly understood that about him when he came out there and uh, commanded that stage. Jim, you and I are going to play some songs now from this particular concert. Give it an example of flair for what was going on there. And the one I want to play is 25 Minutes to Go, which was one of the centerpieces of that show as far as I'm concerned. It was written by Shel Silverstein, and and he's probably best known, uh, Silverstein is, at least for Cash fans, is the guy who wrote A Boy Named Sue, which was a big part of that San Quentin album that Cash recorded a year later. But I think the key song that Silverstein, I think a better song, actually, is 25 Minutes to Go. And what it is is basically written, from again, from the perspective of a prisoner on death row, his last 25 minutes on earth. 
and listen to how the audience responds to certain key lines in this song. 25 minutes to go from Johnny Cash on Sound Opinions. Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal but 23 minutes ago. But nobody asked me how I feel. I got 22 minutes to go. Well, I sent for the governor and the whole darn bunch with 21 minutes to go. And I called up the mayor, but he's out to lunch. I got 20 more minutes to go. Then the sheriff said, boy, I'm going to watch you die with 19 minutes to go. So I laughed in his face and I spit in his eye with 18 minutes to go. Now here comes a preacher for to save my soul with 13 minutes to go. And he's talking about burning, but I'm so cold. Twelve more minutes to go. Well, they're testing the trap, and it chills my spine. Eleven more minutes to go. And the trap and the rope, all oh, they work just fine. <laughs> Ten more minutes to go. Well, Twenty-five minutes to go by Johnny Cash from the classic album we're dissecting at Folsom Prison. You know, Shel Silverstein also, of course, was the author of the timeless children's book, Yes, The Giving Tree. But gallows humor, Greg. What great gallows humor. They're building a gallows outside my cell. Mm-hmm. I've got 25 minutes to go. The whole town's coming just to hear me yell. Yep. i got 24 minutes to go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to play a song uh, where, where Cash is no longer laughing. It's called Greystone Chapel, and it ends the album. It's different from much of what's on the record because it's, well, first of all, it's a lot longer. It's six minutes uh, on a record where most of the songs are, are two or three. And uh, it's not a, a song that he wrote. It's a tune that was written by a guy named Glenn Shirley just a couple of years earlier in the late 60s. Shirley was an inmate at Folsom Prison when he wrote the song, which is juxtaposing prison life and, and being constricted and constrained with spiritual freedom and flying high and wide. The night before they recorded this song, Cash and the band were staying at the El Rancho Motel in yeah. Sacramento, the right. capital of California, 10 miles away from the town of Folsom where the prison was. And one of Cash's closest friends, the Reverend Gresset, came up to Cash and he asked a favor. And we have exactly what he said. He said, Johnny, I want you to hear a song written by Glenn Shirley, an inmate in Folsom, serving five to life for armed robbery. You've been so busy that I haven't had a chance to tell you about it, but I thought you could mention tomorrow maybe that you've heard the tape and it would please that old boy. Kish did one better. They listened to the tape as a band, and he was moved almost to tears by the lines. that There's a graystone chapel here at Folsom, a house of worship in this den of sin. You wouldn't think God has a place at Folsom, but he'll save the soul of many a lost man. Mm -hmm. And I think that to end the show, you can hear this thunderous applause. Again, is it pandering? You know, I'm playing a song written by one of you guys. Hello, Cleveland, right? right. No. This is the fundamental message of Cash's entire career. I'm a sinner, Lord, but you're going to forgive me. And I'd rather be in the company of these fellow sinners than some of the saints I've met. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Cash was a man who loved... Not in the middle of the road. He loved to travel in the gutter. I think that this is the perfect exclamation point to one of the greatest albums ever recorded. Here it is, Greystone Chapel from At Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash. Inside the walls of prison... My body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. There's a gray stone chapel here at Folsom, a house of worship in this den of sin. You wouldn't think that God had a place here at Folsom. He saved the soul of many lost men Now this gray stone chapel here at Folsom Stands a hundred years old made of granite rock 
It takes a ring of keys to move here at Folsom. But the door to the house of God is never locked. Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but the Lord has set my soul free. Raystone Chapel by Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison, an album, Greg, that is 40 years old, but it has not aged a day. One of the surest points of evidence of that is the number of covers. Everybody from Diamanda Galas to the Reverend Horton Heat, the Pine Valley Cosmonauts to the band playing under us, Uncle Tupelo. If you want to sound off on Johnny Cash or anything we talk about on Sound Opinions, give us a call at 888-859-1800 or email interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with reviews of the latest records from the lead singer of Rage Against the Machine and the rising indie rockers, Black Kids. Early in the morning I was making the rounds I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down I went straight home and I went to bed I stopped loving 44 beneath my head Early next morning I grabbed that gun I took a shot of cocaine and away I run Then I could run but I run too slow They took me down in Juarez, Mexico Joy, just for taking the pills And walked the sheriff from Jericho Hills He said, Willie, the young man is not Jack Brown You're a dirty hack that shot your woman down yes, So yes, my name is Willie Lee You got a warrant, just to read it to me I shot a girl because she made me sore I thought it was her daddy, but she had five more And I was arrested I was dressed in black They put me on a train They took me back I had no friends For the gold mile bill They threw my dirty carcass In that county jail They say that in one It won't be the first casualty So I figured select the eye But resurrect the fly My issue set for your neck Why never, never Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Wild International, the first single from the new EP by Zach Delarocca. He's calling his project One Day as a Lion. Greg, after Chinese Democracy, the alleged next album by what was once Guns N' Roses, the most overdue but nonetheless eagerly anticipated release in the hard rock universe has been the solo album that uh, Zach Delarocca was allegedly making from the minute he left Rage Against the Machine way back in October 2000. There were rumors. You know, he, he split because of the alleged creative differences, saying that what they'd become was, quote, undermining our artistic and political ideal. So what was this guy going to do? If he was saying Rage wasn't, you know, what he wanted it to be, how good was his music going to be? So there were rumors over the years. He's working with DJ Shadow. He's working with Trent Reznor. He's working with Amir Questlove Thompson. Now it turns out that uh, the first thing he's giving us is a record he recorded with the drummer, former drummer of Mars Volta, John Theodore. And they're calling it One Day as a Lion, which is a a slogan from a famous 1970 photo by George Rodriguez, the Latino photographer. It's better to live one day as a lion than a thousand years as a lamb. Knowing where this guy came from, Rage Against the Machine, you know you're going to get some combination of hard rock, heavy metal, and hip-hop. You know you're going to get political, incendiary, fiery lyrics. You know you're not going to get Tom Morello, the guitarist who really was the heart and soul of Rage Against the Machine. So what are we going to get? Let's hear a track, and then we'll talk about what One Day as a Lion is giving us. The song I'm going to play is called If You Fear Dying. It's by One Day as a Lion, Zach Delarocca on Sound Opinions. Uh. 
Fear Dying from One Day as a Lion, the self-titled debut EP on Sound Opinions. Zach Delaraca's new project. Jim, as you mentioned, this was initially going to be a hip-hop record in which he was going to collaborate with people like Questlove from The Roots and LP and DJ Shadow. It has morphed into something that is a little bit more uh, verging on the industrial rock avant-garde terrain. More in the pocket, I think, of uh, Public Image Limited, Flowers of Romance, a very stripped-down, kind of minimalist thing. Mm. I hear elements of suicide, the New York City duo from the 70s and 80s, a little bit of that last LP album, I'll, I'll Sleep When You're Dead, which we reviewed yeah, yeah. very favorably on this show. So it's in that in that vein, uh, those scuzzy keyboards over the top of Theodore's drumming, the braggadocio of rap being transported into a more political realm. Basically, I'm the threat. I'm the hole in the pipeline. I'm the roadside bomb, as he says in If You Fear Dying. You yeah. know, we've heard this before from Rage Against the Machines. Del Araca is infamous for, you know, being the first guy over the ramparts. When the violent revolution comes, you know, yeah. Zach's going to be leading the charge with, you, you know, know, his bandolier. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he had eight years of downtime <laughs> vacation since Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. and. Did I miss it, or was there a revolution led by Zach in between? And I, you know, and not only that, there was only five songs and 20 minutes of music. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, what, what exactly was going on here, Zach? So at the same time, I like the sound here. It's not exactly what was expected of him. Then again, I think there have been records out there very recently, including the LP record that I cited. Much better, The yeah. Saul Williams record. Oh, yeah. Uh, could all be considered similar type of records that did this sort of thing better. Della Rock is not saying anything new. He's saying we still need the violent revolution. We still need to destroy the capitalist system that we live in. Meanwhile, this guy's turned into a multimillionaire over the years, living off of yeah. Rage Against the Machine profits. So I'm having a little trouble buying the heavy political sloganeering in here. I'm going to give it a burn it on the patented sound opinions rating scale of buy it, burn it, trash it. Well, I think in, in terms of uh, the music, what's new is that you're trying to replace Tom Morello with some squeaky synthesizers, yeah. and that don't work. I'll tell you, Theodore is a better drummer than uh, Rage and its rhythm section, but Della Rock is also singing. Maybe about a third of the album, instead of rapping or chanting as he usually did, yeah. uh, he's singing in a sort of Perry Farrell-like warble. Mm-hmm. Rage, I think, was always a great sound that, that was uh, brought down a notch by its empty, bombastic, lyrical style. The only thing new in terms of his, you know, we're going to start the revolution nonsense rhetoric is uh, a new uh, anti-religious bent. And I was like, you know, you, you're just trying to push buttons. And sometimes, as with Rage, who was a headliner at Lollapalooza, where we were this last weekend, and, you know, th- there were 40 people hurt during this set. There was a big violent explosion. There was all, And you're, you're asking... To what end? Yeah. Della Rocco was on stage saying, Brother Obama, if you don't get the troops out of Afghanistan, we are going to burn down every office in the yeah. Senate. <laughs> and it's just like, why don't you build something for once instead of just asking us to throw bombs? Mm-hmm. On lyrics, this is a trash it. On the sonics, it's, it's, it's a burn it. I'll side with that. It's always been easy enough to tune out his silliness and just enjoy the ride. Listen to Your Body Tonight from the Much Ballyhooed debut album from the Black Kids uh, called Party Traumatic. Black Kids formed in 2006 in Jacksonville, Florida, and within a year had songs up on the MySpace.com 
website, which were reviewed rapturously in numerous publications around the world. On the basis of four songs, the Black Kids were championed as the second coming of the next great rock band of all time. Rapturously received performance at the CMJ uh, Music Conference in New York City last October. Lines around the block, people couldn't get in. Big media reviews in all the major publications. And, as I said, only four songs. Finally, the record is here. Before we review the record, let's hear a song from this uh, biracial co-ed quintet from Jacksonville, Florida. It's called I'm Not Gonna Teach Your Boyfriend How to Dance With You from Black Kids on Sound Opinions. Kids from their first full album. The song is called I'm Not Gonna Teach Your Boyfriend How to Dance With You. Greg, this album drives me up a wall. Boy, do I dislike <laughs> it. A colleague of ours, uh, Will Hermes, wrote in Rolling Stone that this was a, uh, quote, a campy mix of pillow fight synth pop and B-52's giddiness. Why anyone would think that's a good thing, I have no idea, <laughs> to which I will add an even more egregious element in the mix, the sort of third-tier British dance-pop uh, wannabe ultra-hipster laid-back attitude personified by a band like Suede. And gee, look at that. Producer Bernard Butler was a member of Suede. Mm-hmm. There is this sneering hipness. There is this sort of desperate sexuality. It's revealing that in Jacksonville, Florida, these people all came together at Sunday school, which they say with a little smile and yeah. a smirk. You know, Sunday school is the only place in the Deep South where you could get together with members of the opposite sex. So we always had a lot of fun. It's like, man, go away. If if that's your, I don't want to hang out with you, not in Sunday school, not on the dance floor, not in my CD player. Trash it. Well, I have to say that if this record had not been so massively hyped, and there's an already, it must be said, a tremendous backlash, backlash, it almost feels a little over the top. Like people are really sticking the knife in just because they are so aggrieved by the level of hype that first brought this band to light. This band is going to disappear very quickly. I seriously dislike the sort of campy cleverness that some of these lines are written with. This, that, you know, we're so tongue-in-cheek. You are the girl that I've been dreaming of ever since I was a little girl. Yeah. You know, I, they, they so want to be David Bowie in 1972. I, I don't understand why we need this pose, you know, why we need something so insincere at this point in time. Right. Uh, there is a sense of frothy fun, but it, it seems like they're too cool to be enjoying it. Right. It's like we're better than you almost. There's no, not a sense of participating with the audience. It's almost like we're the cool, we're the coolest kids on the block. We are the cool new band, and we're going to act like it. It's like, what is your tone here? Is it sarcasm? Is is it is it comedy? Is it is it sincerity? I don't know what you're talking I, about. I, I think the problems start with the uh, Reggie Youngblood, the vocalist. Um, here here's this you know this black kid from Florida trying to sound like Robert Smith of the Cure. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't get that. I don't think Robert Smith should sound like Robert Smith. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and certainly in this context, it, it is a very, it's an annoying record on a lot of levels. And frankly, I think it's 
a disservice to all music lovers that this band was so seriously <laughs> hyped when it came out that we have to pay attention to this record. Yeah. Because yeah. if it had come out, I think we would have very easily ignored it. But it's almost like you have to review it because so many people are talking about it. Right. But, folks, you don't need to listen to this thing. Trust us. It's a trash it record. A double trash it. All right. Well, what do we got on the uh, on next week? Hopefully that will not be trash. Next week, Jim, uh, we have a real treat. Zoe Dachanel and M. Ward, she from Hollywood, he from the indie rock realm, have combined to make a pretty good record uh, called She and Him, Volume 1, and we've got them live in the studio. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace production team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from Dylan Peterson, and our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia, a man who I have it on good authority, once tripped a man in Juno just to watch him fly. everyone's a critic so give us a call on our hotline 1-888-859-1800 new messages hi jim and greg this is chase hour from central massachusetts um i've been listening to the show since it became a podcast and i didn't think it could get any better but i gotta say you guys have really kicked it up this year i just want to say i always love it when you start your call section with the uh, the original Nerves version of Hanging on the Telephone, uh, you know, Blondie's great, but, but the Nerves. Uh, and I'm hoping that someday you'll find an excuse to play uh, their other great song, When You Find Out, which I think is the best fake Beatles song ever. Thanks a lot, guys. Love the show. Bye. I tried to explain, but you don't see. No one can give you more love than me. You say you're waiting for just the right one. You'll try to find me when he lets you down. When you find out.
Hey, this is Josh in Manhattan. I love listening to the show every week because it's as invigorating to disagree with you guys as it is to find new stuff. So thank you for that. And I have to say that usually my tastes differ completely from Mr. Dear Goddesses. However, this last week when you reviewed the Girl Talk album, I immediately went and downloaded it and paid a little bit of money. And um, it is... It's fantastic. I'm getting married in November. I, I, I have a feeling we're probably going to use several of the tracks uh, during the reception to dance to. So anyway, great show, and uh, keep up the good work. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.